Trade liberalization typically refers to the reduction of frictions between two or more entities that trade with each other. In practice, this often means removing or diminishing both restrictions and bans on trade, including tariffs like duties and surcharges on specific types of broad categories of goods, but also things like quotas and licensing rules, all of which make trade more difficult or expensive between the entities, often governments, in question. And that increased friction is often the intent of these regulations. There are pros and cons to liberalizing trade rules and laws, and they vary based on who you are, where you are, and what kind of work you do. In general, more liberalized trade will mean more competition, because it will become easier and less expensive to do business with entities elsewhere. So if you produce a particular good, you'll no longer just be competing with the business down the street or in the next city over that produces the same good. You'll be competing with all similar companies in this other country with which you have liberalized trade rules as well. This can lower prices for consumers who now have more and perhaps cheaper options and more competition, which often leads to more competitive pricing. It can also lower costs for businesses, which can now do business with suppliers from other countries, potentially reducing their overhead. That increased competition can also cut profit margins for the businesses in question, however, in some cases forcing them to close up shop, because they cannot compete with businesses from elsewhere that, in some cases, have advantages that they cannot match, like cheaper labor a government-subsidized business environment, or infrastructure that allows for better access to necessary resources or things like less expensive shipping channels. There are extreme positions on the free trade spectrum, from borderline absolutists who believe there should be no barriers at all, which would theoretically allow the best businesses in all categories to kill off their less effective, less efficient competition worldwide, to the opposite, protectionist side that believes competition from other countries should be heavily regulated, perhaps even blocked in some cases, because it's more important that local businesses can survive and thrive than that global specialization determines winners and losers. There are too many regional differences for this to make sense as a survival of the fittest mechanism, in other words. These concerns, and others, including those related to environmental, quality, and labor practices, defined the conversations surrounding the Trans-Pacific Strategic Economic Partnership Agreement, which was signed by four countries, Brunei, Singapore, Chile, and New Zealand, in 2005, representing a commitment to figuring out how to reduce tariffs between these signatory nations by 90% by 2006, and a reduction of all tariffs to zero by 2015. This agreement evolved in 2008 when the United States expressed interest in joining, and after seven years and 19 formal negotiating rounds, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, was formalized in October of 2015, established to serve as a regional counterbalance to China's rapidly developing influence in the region in pretty much every realm, but especially in respect to trade dominance in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. 
Japan, in particular, had a lot to lose from China's economic ascent as the third largest economy in the world in terms of nominal GDP and fourth largest in terms of purchasing power parity. The country is highly reliant on trade and being at the intersection of several of the world's most important and moneyed trade routes further emphasizes that reliance. Thus, between 2008 and 2015, the agreement extended to include Singapore, Brunei, New Zealand, and Chile, but also the United States, Peru, Vietnam, Malaysia, Mexico, Canada, and Japan, which meant it would include about 40% of the total global economy, a trade network that would ostensibly become all the larger and more active due to the reduction and eventual practical elimination of trade barriers between these countries. But then a different sort of politics came into play. The U.S. Obama administration doubled down on the TPP as a mechanism for pivoting to the Asian-Pacific region. Basically, U.S. foreign policy had been focused elsewhere, particularly the Middle East and the Atlantic, for a good long while, and China's emergence as the presumptive next superpower warranted increased military, economic, and geopolitical attention. The TPP would give the U.S. a huge advantage in that region, which it was suspected would become necessary as China became more ambitious and started making their own deals and forming their own regional economic networks, locking in more power and influence for themselves. There were, however, quite a few issues with this agreement, perhaps biggest and broadest among them the fact that the whole process was essentially opaque to the public. This vitally important, seemingly monumental change-everything trade deal was shrouded in secrecy from the beginning to the end, and this would impact essentially every industry in the United States, but also things like intellectual property laws, freedom of expression regulations, and the right to due process and privacy. From the Electronic Freedom Foundation, which came out as highly opposed to TPP, quote, all signatory countries would have been required to conform their domestic laws and policies to the provisions of the agreement. In the U.S., this would have further entrenched controversial aspects of U.S. copyright law, such as the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, DMCA, and restricted the ability of Congress to engage in domestic law reform to meet the evolving needs of American citizens and the innovative technology sector. Overall, the TPP's provisions that recognize the rights of the public are non-binding, whereas most everything that benefits rights holders is binding, end quote. In short, copyright durations would have been extended, enforcement of DRM and similar policies would have been strengthened, fair use policies would have been weakened, journalists and whistleblowers would have been made a lot more vulnerable, and punishments for all kinds of pro-individual anti-corporation behaviors would have become more expansive and punitive. The TPP felt to many like a secretive gift to primarily American corporations then, but one that was disguised as a trade deal that would flood the involved economies with new, cheaper goods and probably make a lot of people a lot of money, but perhaps at the expense of local businesses. The only way to survive would be to go global and opt for ever more efficiency so that you could scale quickly and brutally. In 2016, then-U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump vowed to withdraw the U.S. from the TPP if elected, and the memo he signed after he was elected went into effect in early 2017, which many claim was a good thing for American businesses 
especially smaller businesses, but bad for American international policy and big-picture interests, as it made the U.S. look unreliable and removed a linchpin of the macro-level plan to shift the country's attention to the Pacific. The response to this move was complicated, with many of the other TPP signatory countries seeing it as a bad sign for American leadership, looking a whole lot like unreliability and an inward focus, rather than working as a team toward global goals. While politics within the U.S. were scattered on the issue, with Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell keeping the issue from being considered on the Senate floor, the late Republican Senator John McCain saying it was a bad move that would make us look disengaged from an important region, Democrats from the Obama administration decrying the move as a sign that Trump would more or less destroy hard-won American foreign policy wins, and progressive Democrat presidential candidate Bernie Sanders saying that it was a good move leaving the TPP, as the deal would have resulted in a race-to-the-bottom situation for American workers who would largely suffer so corporations could thrive. In the aftermath of the U.S. withdrawal from the agreement, the remaining 11 nations that were signed on to the TPP agreed to revive the concept as a new agreement, sans the U.S., and that new agreement was signed in 2018 under the moniker Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, or CPTPP. About two-thirds of the CPTPP is the same as in the TPP, and the remaining one-third, which was mostly included for the United States' benefit, was removed or overhauled in this new version. As of early 2019, this agreement has come into force for all the signatory nations, whose GDPs add up to about 13.4% of the world's total GDP. It became the third-largest free trade area after the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, which is the successor to the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA, and the European Single Market. What I'd like to talk about today is another free trade agreement that was signed quite recently, which represents a potentially massive shift in global trade norms, but also recalibrates some very significant geopolitical relationships in the Asian-Pacific region. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, China-Led Trade Pact is Signed in Challenge to U.S. In 2011, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, was introduced at the 18th ASEAN Summit, ASEAN being an acronym for Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which today counts Brunei, Cambodia, Indonesia, Laos, Malaysia, Myanmar, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam as members, China, Japan, and South Korea as part of the ASEAN Free Trade Area, and East Timor, and Papua New Guinea as potential future members, currently considered to be observer states. This association is quite broad, extending to include Australia, India, New Zealand, Russia, and even the United States in its East Asia Summit, regional form event, and Bangladesh, Canada, Mongolia, North Korea, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and the European Union in its security-oriented regional forum. At that 2011 summit for this group, 
RCEP was introduced, and negotiations began the following year, with 31 official meetings of representatives from the interested nations taking place over the next eight years, leading up to November 15, 2020, when the 15 member countries that made it to the end of those discussions met via video link, a fancy Zoom call, basically, due to the COVID-19 pandemic to formalize the signing and celebrate the event, despite not being able to do so in person. RCEP is similar to the TPP and its successor, the CPTPP, in many ways, including being hated by the Electronic Freedom Foundation, which wrote back in 2016 that it contained, quote, quite simply the worst provisions on copyright ever seen in a trade agreement, end quote. Alongside those copyright-related concerns, there were also concerns about local entrepreneurs and business people being put out of business and hobbled in their efforts to compete due to new competition from other individuals and businesses from around the world, some of whom likely had insurmountable advantages over those local options, which would make the whole situation quite asymmetric. And because the point of this and similar trade deals is to remove barriers to trade, it's also likely that such asymmetries would remain and would be legislatively unfixable because the tools typically used to fix them, tariffs and similar frictions, would no longer be possible. It was due to that latter concern that India pulled out of the deal in late 2019. This was partially a consequence of increasing tensions with China, with whom they share a border and with whom they have periodic scuffles across that border, alongside all kinds of economic and other geopolitical issues. They worried, basically, that even as they tried to double down on patriotic local purchasing, sometimes called nationalistic consumption in its extreme form, by blocking Chinese apps and goods, this trade deal would open up the floodgates, allowing a torrent of Chinese goods and apps to blanket their economy, crushing their local industries and diminishing their ability to utilize economic levers against one of their main regional foes. This pullout leaves India on the outside of a deal that affects about a third of all economic activity on the planet, includes 15 countries containing about 2.2 billion people, with a combined GDP of something like $26 trillion, which should make it the biggest trade bloc in history. When RCEP goes into effect in about two years, which is how long it's expected to take for each of the involved countries to ratify it locally, about 92% of all goods traded between member nations will receive a reduction in tariffs. And though this could be broadly beneficial to all of the involved countries in various ways, it's also being seen as a major diplomatic and economic coup by the Chinese government in particular. To be clear, since I mentioned a slew of countries that are in various ways associated with the ASEAN summit a few moments ago, the countries that stuck with and signed RCEP are Australia, Brunei, Cambodia, China, Indonesia, Japan, Laos, Malaysia, Myanmar, New Zealand, the Philippines, Singapore, South Korea, Thailand, and Vietnam. Among those names, you may notice a large number of traditional allies of the United States, and countries in particular that are seen as being vital bulwarks against Chinese expansionism and influence in the region. The U.S. pulling out of the TPP put a lot of these countries in an awkward position, and subsequent actions by U.S. President Donald Trump implied that the states were no longer interested in dealing equitably with anyone, even our traditional allies and trading partners. They seemed as likely to get seemingly random and slapdash tariffs thrust upon them at random as they were to get comfortable contracts under his administration. 
China, via this trade deal, has been able to unify a huge chunk of this region, but also of the world's economic activity around their center of gravity. And although trade doesn't heal all wounds, and almost certainly isn't making the other member countries in RCEP rest on their laurels when it comes to China's other potential threat vectors, it does make it less likely that the U.S. or other countries that are positioning themselves to oppose China's rise in various ways, if they attempt to spread their influence and control further than they already have, it makes it less likely that those countervailing forces will be able to convince Australia or South Korea, for instance, to make a clean, clear break with China and completely oppose them if future situations warrant such opposition. Said another way, this isn't a tie that binds as tightly or as long-lastingly as a military alliance, but it is a tie that binds, and every little thread matters when it comes to international political maneuverings. And this particular thread is substantial enough that it's likely to be a serious headache for those who have ambitions that run counter to those of China well into the future. Beyond those tangible ramifications of this deal, which I should note also include incentives for those countries to deal more with each other instead of countries outside this trade zone, this is also being seen as a symbolic victory for China, as they've increasingly become the powerful, economically expansive center of gravity the anchor for these sorts of deals, instead of the United States and other powerful, primarily Western nations, as has been the case for most of recent history. The TPP is a good counterpoint for this, because, for all its many flaws, it was a deal that more or less hinged on the U.S.'s involvement. The CPTPP isn't nothing, but it's definitely not the same thing as the originally planned trade union, in terms of scale or in terms of broader influence. Instead of having a powerful Western hinge country, then, RCEP is a sprawling, important agreement that puts China at the center of a sort of regional hegemony, in practice if not in name, and that represents a shift in the global power dynamic that has long been predicted and which tends to manifest in the shape of these sorts of deals, unions, and treaties, rather than in more dramatic, movie-worthy form. There were a lot of reasons the forces that be, particularly the U.S. Obama administration, wanted the TPP to succeed, and among them was unifying, through free trade, this group of nations, not against China, perhaps, but together without China, excluding China from their closer ties and burgeoning relationships. There were a lot of good reasons to ditch the TPP then, but also some significant consequences for doing so. Among them, the ceding of regional soft power to this new, seemingly more reliable, in this instance at least, anchor state. What many analysts are watching for now is how this type of trade relationship plays out in the aftermath of a global pandemic. It could help those involved to heal and grow faster than their excluded peers, but it could also cause untold problems with local businesses facing not just the issues related to opening after COVID, but also the consequences of opening up to more competition simultaneously. That extra strain could result in some major success stories, but it could also prove crippling to some industries in some countries. Also on the to-watch list is what happens when the, as I record this, impending Biden administration steps into the White House and recalibrates U.S. foreign policy 
away from the pseudo-protectionism of the past four years, to focus on what looks to be a still-oppositional stance toward China, but one that is more in the tradition of post-World War II U.S. policy, which typically involves building relationships and incentivizing cooperation against a common foe. That could mean efforts to hinder this trade union, but it could also mean building others, trying to reintroduce carrots into deals and relationships that have mostly, of late, primarily involved sticks. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Innovation Delusion, How Our Obsession with the New Has Disrupted the Work That Matters Most, by Lee Vinsel. What this book did best, in my mind, was provide a whole lot of supplementary evidence and case studies, good, tangible examples of something that I feel pretty strongly about, that we tend to incentivize certain types of work and behavior and thinking over others. And this is more true in some countries than others, and more true in some industries than others, but arguably especially in the United States, and especially in fields that are quickly changing due to technological disruption. Innovation is generally considered to be a good thing, whereas other things that we might focus on, like maintenance, or slow iterative improvement as opposed to revolution, tend to play second fiddle. And in a lot of cases, the funding, the resources that would typically go to these sorts of things, to small, non-sexy iteration, and to maintaining bridges and keeping things clean, that money is instead reinvested in things that will get good press coverage and that seems like the forces in control of those resources are doing something. And there's a lot of different reasons for this, and there are a lot of unfortunate consequences of this. And innovation is not always a horrible thing. It's more that it is typically a negative thing when it excludes or elbows aside all other possible things that we might be thinking about. Now, if anything about that concept sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Innovation Delusion by Lee Vinsel. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.